all of the organizations and companies are talking about centering people of color and lifting community voice and really listening to communities. What better way to do that than to fill our organizations and our companies with those of us who have that firsthand experience to actually support true power in decision making and that we all work together, whether we're in community or as allies, to really make systems change. But don't kid ourselves that people have choice if they really don't. And so when I think about what fundamental fairness is, it go a lot of different ways, but I think the crux of it all would be true choice. Welcome to Fundamental Fairness, a podcast about financial inclusion from the lens of entrepreneurs, policymakers, and investors. Brought to you by Camino Financial with your host, Sean Salas. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fundamental Fairness titled CDFIs as Mainstream Capital Providers for the Underbanked. Now, let me set the stage. As the racial justice uprisings last year began to shine a light on how communities of color have been historically excluded from banks and government wealth building programs, CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions, became increasingly popular investment vehicles for governments, foundations, and businesses as a means of advancing racial economic justice through fair and affordable capital. Between February and April 2020, minority-led microenterprises dropped 41%, all higher than 17% decline of white-owned businesses. These staggering discrepancies are just the most recent examples of the U.S.'s long-standing history of excluding minorities from mainstream financial systems and wealth-building opportunities. Despite this equity gap, investing in these underestimated and underbanked is an exceptionally great opportunity for generational wealth creation and growth of our community. In this episode of Fundamental Fairness, we dive deep into CDFIs and discuss their role as mainstream capital providers for the underbanked community with Lucy Arriano. Now, let me introduce Lucy Arriano Bagliari. She's the chief strategy officer and senior vice president at Low Income Investment Fund. She oversees Lyft's strategy, development, and public affairs team and leads the implementation of Lyft's strategic plan and social justice initiatives. Prior to joining Lyft in 2020, she served as chief strategy officer for the Mission Economic Development Agency, MEDA, leading the organization's regional and national work focused on economic and racial equity initiatives in Latino and immigrant communities across the country. Her work draws on her own lived experience as a proud immigrant from Mexico and a career dedicated to communities facing the deepest inequalities working largely across Black and Latino communities. Welcome, Lucy Arellano, to our podcast. Thank you for having me. And thank you and congratulations for all the work that you and Camino are doing. Oh, thank you very much. We're in it together. And based on that, let's start chatting. You're clearly a nationally recognized leader and known for your community development efforts. So let's get started with you telling us a little bit more about yourself and feel free to go as deep and personal as you like, just to add more color to that very long bio that I just gave our audience. And also tell us a little bit about your role in the CDFI industry. Sure. And thank you for the introduction. A little bit more of the background, you know, you noted that I am a proud immigrant from Mexico. My family and I came to the U.S. when I was a child. We were a total of nine. So I had the, quite frankly, 
sheer luck of being the sixth of seven children. I have parents who are together, luckily very healthy, just left for vacation this morning. So they're doing well. I'm very fortunate for that. But the reason that I think that this is so important is because when you talk about generational wealth building, I had the fortune of being on the tail end of a generation. So Mm. that's something that I have had the opportunity to see firsthand now that my siblings and I have our own families. It's almost like we're second generation, right? My siblings were the ones that had to work and go to school at the same time. They were the ones waking up at four o'clock. They were the ones that had to navigate a lot of systems that created opportunities for me. And so when I came to understand my good fortune in that, that's really what kind of made me want to go into the career. I kind of meandered my way into the CDFI industry. But that's a lot of the context for how I think about generational wealth building, but also how I know that both what we can do and also the challenges that will persist even as we try to work through that. Great. And then what brought you to translate that, your personal experience into focusing your efforts in the CDFI world? So, you know, I understood that I had a built-in support network. And so as I started to think about my career, I knew that I wanted to work in support networks for communities, my own communities, communities that were in similar situations to to Latinos and into immigrants. Here in the U.S., broadly across the country, we know that Black and Latino communities, we share a lot of the same strengths, Mm -hmm. right? Our incomes are going up. Entrepreneurship rates are ahead. When things are better, our homeownership rates go up, education rates. But on the flip side of that, we also share a lot of the inequities, you know, despite our different histories. When things are not so great with the economy, our gains get wiped out the quickest, right? We're right there next to each other. We saw over, we've seen over the last year and a half or so in the pandemic, our infection, our hospitalization, and our death rates. Unfortunately, we also suffer the most inequities there because those are compounded by all of these other socioeconomic factors. So I really wanted to dedicate myself to um, community programs. So that's where I got my start. You know, I mentioned I meandered a bit. So worked a lot in direct services, worked in programs, thinking about how I could lend my own lived experience, what I wish my family and I had access to when Mm -hmm. we were navigating certain things. But after a certain point, started to hit some walls and realized, you know, came to have more of a a systems understanding. I studied partially criminal justice. You know, I started to understand the criminal justice system. I started to understand political systems, started to better understand the financial system and started to get really frustrated, quite frankly, understanding that one, we were facing the deepest inequities and were being held back by these systems and that we were the least represented as powerful decision makers in these systems. And so ultimately found my way into broader community development found my way into community development finance, knowing that, you know, we live in a capitalistic society, right? Money is the make or break for everything that we try to do. By the way, you're drawing this picture beautifully. And you said a big buzzword that I want to underscore. And if you can break it down a little bit more for us before you proceed, that would be great. You said community development finance. What's the difference between just financing and community development finance? Because I think that's the CDF of the CDFI. And I think it's really important for our audience to understand that nuance and how you think about community development finance. 
Yeah, absolutely. So most of my experience has been in the nonprofit sector. For the most part, CDFIs are thought of as like nonprofit banks. We have missions that are intended to be very community focused and have impact in communities. The community development sector and CDFIs were born out of the civil rights movement. And so in response to racist systems, systemically racist policies, such as redlining, such as lots of other exclusionary policies that really were holding back communities of color. Mm -hmm. And so this community development finance really revolves around trying to address those challenges. So whether that be affordable housing, small business development and supporting entrepreneurship, educational or other community facilities, really it's the financing of those facilities. But again, you know, even though community development finance was really born to fill the the market gaps for communities of color, was not from the get-go and quite frankly, still is not sufficiently led by communities of color. And that's a really big difference, right? We know that the financial markets are very powerful domestically and internationally. And so when I think about my work in CDFIs and in community development finance is both to be a representative and a connector. My own experience, lived or professional, but I don't have all the answers, right? But one principle that I really hang on to is lifting community voice and partnering mm. to understand what different communities want, need, and have developed. So many communities have solutions already developed. They may just be lacking the resources and the infrastructure to execute. And that's really where CDFIs can come in as a partner and as an ally. And I really wanted to make the jump into the CDFI world. I had an opportunity to serve in an executive level position, a position of influence with a platform in an organization that is national, well-resourced. Lyft has currently under about a billion dollars under management. Wow. Uh, has invested almost three billion since the time, you know, the decades that we've been around. Again, really recognizing that people with my lived experience or similar really are just not represented. We're those that are served. We're those that are often designed for, but we're not necessarily the decision makers or those that are controlling the money, as I like to say. And that was really an important priority for me. Yeah. And if you can elaborate, where are Lyft's investments allocated across what types of products and impact opportunities? Sure. So that's actually what drew me to Lyft. So Lyft went through a new strategic planning process a couple of years ago and has done a lot of great work, again, over the last several decades, but wanted to narrow and wanted to focus right, had a very core priority on racial equity and understood that despite decades of serving people of color, communities of color, and other low-income communities, we were still facing deep inequities. And so decided to try to narrow and go deeper in a few mm-hmm. areas. Awesome. So that's where Lyft decided to focus on affordable housing. We know, you know, whether it's a social determinant of health, framework that talks about what are the different community development components that we need that affect our health, which, you know, COVID has been the poster child for. Also, early care and education. So, you know, often we talk about K through 12, and there's deep inequity, particularly for children and families and providers of color in the early care and education space for access. We know that access to quality and affordable early care and education 
not only provides mobility for the children and development for the children themselves, it allows parents to be able to participate more in the workforce. Often families have to make the choice between the workforce or early care and education. And then also the economy as a whole. Again, COVID has really just shown a light on how crucial the early care and education sector is. It's under-resourced. Mm-hmm. It's entrepreneurs, for the most part, women of color that are the providers that are not getting rich off these businesses, right? But they're essentially providing a public good. And then Lyft's last area, which, you know, you're not supposed to pick your favorite child, right? Mm-hmm. But what I was most compelled by was a category that we call impact-led lending. And this is an area where we were really, the organization at that time I hadn't joined, was challenging itself to really rethink how the organization was making lending decisions. Mm-hmm. What was the actual criteria that we might adjust? What were the risk reassessments that we might make to not only try to take more risk, but to also challenge the traditional notions of risk? Who is considered the riskiest borrower? What are considered the riskiest types of investments? We know that those traditional notions are also steeply rooted in systemic racism. And so how we might be able to change that. So those are the three areas that Lyft is focused on right now. We just entered year two of four for this strategic plan. And I work with, you know, partner across the organization and with external partners as we're trying to move through those different areas. That is great. And if I can paraphrase a little bit of what you said, it's you go where no one else has gone or wants to go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you do it with a hyper focus using affordable financing as a tool with high impact to dollar ratios. And that's what I love about CDFIs. That's what I love about having this kind of conversations. And we need to move the needle. And I can't emphasize enough. And we were talking about this at the beginning of of the podcast that we need to be featuring CDFIs and more of these conversations around financial inclusion. And one would assume that CDFIs would be on the top of that list, but we'd be surprised sometimes in the context of PPP, how we're not the first to be seen as the solution. I think things have changed since then, by the way, hopefully for the better but we need to make sure we make a lot of noise. So thanks for everything you're doing. And so now that you've broke it down so eloquently, what is your perspective on equitable community development and how this will catalyze growth in underserved communities? And when I say equitable, it's creating the same playing field for people to access the financing and the resources that they need. That may mean that you focus on certain segments in the market that are least served, right? so that you lift them up in the process. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so two things you said, exactly what I would have said. One is CDFIs were supposed to do the work that traditional banks or financial institutions were not doing. So if we're not doing that, if we're operating too traditional bank-like, then we're not doing what we intended to do. And so I think that's really, really important. The other piece that you mentioned also is how we can customize solutions, right? So when we talk about equity, we're not all starting off in the same place. So we can't have a cookie cutter approach and expect everyone to just fend for themselves, right? And have an equal chance to succeed, whether we're talking about financial inclusion or anything else. 
And so when I think about equitable community development, it's really having customized approaches to that. One example, I mean, I could give you a couple, but most recently at Lyft, we just launched a new product, the first of more to come. This is called our Black Developer Capital Initiative. This Mm -hmm. was born out of our Southern and Eastern primarily Atlanta and D.C. markets. This is in the affordable housing space. So these are affordable housing developers. We realized that we were accumulating a portfolio of deals or projects that we couldn't fund, that we could Mm. not get to approval. And so we tried to then take a step back and understand that we would be perpetuating inequity if we were then trying to get these developers to change themselves. And we stopped and asked, what could we change about what we're doing and what could we do differently? What are the specific needs of Black, affordable housing, for-profit, mission-driven developers? And so there was market research that was done talking directly to developers on the ground. What type of product would be able to meet or kind of unlock this pipeline? Hmm. So long story short there is we were able to come up with a new product, which is very beneficial to the Black developers. And we were able to keep it unsecured. It's a line of credit. Keep mm-hmm. it unsecured. We're able to triple the available size of the line of credit. Wow. And we were able to reduce the personal guarantee requirement, which was a major barrier because we know that the Black developers were not showing up with personal wealth at scale in the same way that their white counterparts often were in the field. And so we were able to reduce that personal guarantee requirement by 70%. So as a result of that, we have, I think the first pipeline has eight developers in it five of whom we've never been able to lend before to. And so this is a perfect example of one, understanding by way of asking the community what they need, right? Being directly responsive with our resources and with our power and influence to what we're hearing in communities, and then having a customized approach. This may not be the exact same product that works for a nonprofit developer, as an example. You know, here in California, my experience has been with a Latino and immigrant focused, small business focused, nonprofit focused CDFI, very different needs. If we're really going to get at equity, we really have to put in what sometimes is a little bit of extra work to get to customized solutions. But that's really what is going to get us at equity. That's so great. And once again, I want to paraphrase some of the things you said. I want our audience to have a formulaic roadmap on what CDFIs do that are different. And by the way, the more the merrier, because we need all the help we can get. One element that you said are two themes, and I'll go then a few layers deep, is collaboration and customization, right? In order to collaborate and customize to max impact, I think there are a few sub bullets to that, that kind of tell you that's like the output, right? Of collaboration and customization lead to impact investing. But if I were to go two degrees more into the the ingredients around collaboration and customization, I would say, one, you're going in with a mission. Number two, you're going in with an acute understanding of the market. And I think that's why it's important that a lot of these efforts be led by people that represent the communities they're trying to impact. I'm a big believer in that. Because sometimes you just lose that element of empathy and it's easier Mm -hmm. to give up. But when you have a story like the one you have, 
And then you're working with the third element that I will say, which is you're engaging with people locally. Mm-hmm. You had identified the developers, right? You were able to turn around your conversion of those developers substantially. I think you said five of the eight, mm-hmm. which probably would have otherwise not been able to be given that opportunity. And that requires a lot of localization. And so I think that it's imperative that people see that. Now, I would challenge this, by the way. Mm-hmm. Some people, skeptics, mm-hmm. And I'm skeptical about everything. I'm skeptical about what I do, okay? Would say, you know, okay, that's nice, but can you scale that? Right. Right, can you scale that? That sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) Here's what I say to them. I was actually just on a, I hosted Lisa Mensa for another podcast. Mm -hmm. She runs the Opportunity Finance Network for those that are listening in and you haven't listened to, if you love what you're listening to, also listen to the podcast with Lisa Mensa. She's amazing, mentor, friend. And we talked about this, element of scale, right? Mm -hmm. Because it sounds like a lot of groundwork and how do you scale it? I think the short answer is, I think what you can scale is connecting the dots, right? right? Because what we're finding here is that you do have a lot of local people that care about what they're doing, but sometimes connecting these local resources to other regional resources, national resources, and then enabling that interconnectivity through technology, I think is probably one of the biggest opportunities. That is not only just technology, data, and of course, capital, (laughs) because capital is what lets the blood flow, right? And so I think there is an opportunity. I think we have to give credit to you and to all the other leaders in the CDFI space that have set the groundwork for that level of interconnectivity. And so that's where I'm at. And I think now is the time to do it. I think now is the biggest opportunity to do it because the BLM movement has brought a resurgence of focus on empowering black and brown entrepreneurs. And what better players to do that than CDFS, right? Yeah, I love that. I have a few thoughts on what you said around scale. First and foremost, the product, the Black Developer Capital Initiative that I mentioned at Lyft, scale takes intention, right? And so we have set out with intention around, this is essentially a test case, a pilot, right? An experiment, as some skeptics might say. But our hope is that we will be able to then come out ahead with a lot of success, be able to contribute this to the field, and then advocate. You know, I think that also policy and advocacy is a key for scale, right? And so most recently, with a new federal administration that's really adopted CDFIs as a key strategy across the country, that's through advocacy. That is through the CDFI sector and other partners saying CDFIs are key trusted partners on the ground, as you just said. And so how do we institutionalize this? How do we institutionalize the collaboration and incentivize it so that it doesn't fall by the wayside? And so I totally agree with that scale piece. The other thing that came to mind as you were talking that I often think about is the scaled up inequities that we experience every day did take a lot of work and also took a lot of intentionality. Mm -hmm. So what if we just did the opposite? 
right? And that's a constant grind that we're always up against. There's a tension that there are forces that have been working at this for hundreds of years to scale the inequities that hold back communities of color. And as you said, both the BLM movement and also lots of scaled up commitments right now from financial institutions, from corporations elsewhere. It's really a window of opportunity for us to be organized and to advocate for that not to go away. Because sometimes, not sometimes, mostly, unfortunately, these windows of opportunity are cyclical and they'll start to close a bit. And so it is a lot of legwork for us to scale up equity. But I'm really encouraged by the progress, some progress that we've been making and the organization that we've put together, not just that lift, but broadly in community development. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know, there's the best way to, for lack of a better way, shut up a skeptic is with numbers, con numeros. And so I want to share something really cool about what you're doing at Lyft, which is you just recently announced a $5 billion plan spanning over 40 years to advance racial equity. And so $5 billion is a lot of money. If that's not scale, I think that there's no skeptic that can argue against a $5 billion plan to invest. And I want to learn more about how you plan to invest that capital at scale because it's a lot of money. So what are the focus areas for Lyft's recent investment in advancing racial equity? This episode of Fundamental Fairness with Lucy Arellano Baglieri is brought to you by Camino Financial. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we did want to be bold. We wanted to go big and we wanted to push ourselves. This was something that we really wanted us ourselves to be challenged in, to make sure that we were not falling into old habits, as you might say. And so this is really a combination of something like I just shared, the Black Developer Capital Initiative. What sort of money are we able to get out? We also, about a year ago, acquired a LIHTC syndicator. So this is a low-income housing tax credit syndicator. It's a nonprofit syndicator called National Affordable Housing Trust. LIF has a 60% controlling interest in NAHT, along with SAFE, as Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future. They are a network of 13, I believe, of the largest nonprofit affordable housing developers across the country. Well, that's one example of how we really want to drive $5 billion toward advancing racial equity. How can we pool our resources, our expertise, our platforms to create new products, to advocate together for more equitable policies? For those that are not familiar, we often in this space work with tax credits, so subsidies that we can use and leverage for increased impact. A lot of these come out of the U.S. Treasury Department, like Mm -hmm. the New Markets, the New Market Tax Credit Program Mm -hmm. is one that some listeners might have heard about. This is for community facilities. This is actually, again, as a result of a lot of advocacy. This year, there were billions more dollars than had been put out before. So LIF actually just was a recipient of a $60 million allocation. So we're really focused on how do we go into new geographies? Our approach is comprehensive community development. So we know that everything's interconnected. One priority area for us is the co-location of affordable housing and early care and education. So we leverage our new market tax credit allocations to help develop either co-located literally in the same building, have there be Mm -hmm. affordable housing and early care and education programming, or in close proximity, because we know that people are more likely to access ECE, as we call it, 
near where they live. Mm. And so all of this together is how we are thinking a lot about the public resources that are available, the nonprofit resources. We're also leveraging the ongoing bank resources. So, you know, a lot of the funding or the financing that LIF and other CDFIs have available is essentially, in layman's terms, we borrow money from banks at hopefully advantageous rates so that we can pass on good rates to our borrowers. One thing here that's really important, and this is another advocacy piece, is CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act, which is an area that the CDFI industry has really rallied around at the end of the last administration and then going into this new administration. The previous administration actually took some steps to weaken CRA requirements, meaning Mm. that banks were going to have less requirements on how they were going to support community development finance. And we really felt like the opposite should be happening that banks should have more requirements on how they can support community development finance and to really be able to get at racial equity, right? Not be able to just check the box. Okay, we we lent to an entrepreneur who was a person of color. And my perspective on that is, and what happened down the line, right? Today's not about predatory lending. That's for a whole other podcast, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But really trying to add more teeth to it. So... All this to say that we're really focused on bringing in the diverse sources of funding to really have the ammunition to drive those $5 billion over the next decade. And we're not alone. As you mentioned, everybody is talking about racial equity right now, but really focusing on how we can collaborate to use your word across the sector and even outside of our sector to make sure that we continue to advance this. Well, there was a lot to unpack there, especially on the funding side. We can probably spend a Mm -hmm. podcast on each one of them from the tax credits to CRA and funding through banks. I think very interesting from my perspective. I think my takeaway is that CDFIs have access to lower cost of financing. All these tools and programs effectively enable you to lower your cost base in terms of funding loans, increasing also your liquidity of what you have access to at a lower cost, which should translate into an advantageous or more affordable rate to the borrower. And it's very hard, if not impossible, to access these different pools of capital, if not a CDFI community development financial institution. And I talk about that a lot. In fact, other skeptics would say, well, there's all these fintechs out there that found a way to lower their costs and lend at scale. You don't necessarily need to be a CDFI to access this cheap capital, so to speak. My rebuttal to that would be one, take a hard look at who they're lending to. Right. <laughs> right. Because it's not apples to apples, okay? Right. <laughs> and there's a reason why they're not lending to people within our communities, right? And I get really passionate about this, as you can tell. And so when you segment who they're lending to, and I fundamentally believe, number one, there's two things that are happening. They're not lending into the markets at Mm -hmm. scale that we care about the most. Some of them are. I'm not going to go as far. I mean, where's fintech, right? I'm not going to go out right and say fintechs don't lend. I actually think they do a better job than banks in lending into black and brown Mm -hmm. communities, straight up. I think they showed that to us at PPP. Now, I don't think the intent of what they're doing going into these markets is as strong as other CDFIs, right? Mm-hmm. Other CDFIs in the market. And so I think when you, 
naturally don't go in with that intent. That you're not going to over-optimize your cost structure right. for going after that segment of the market, right? And we're going to talk briefly about what we call focusing on high opportunity areas, mm-hmm. right? So just when you're not focused on high opportunity, high impact areas, you just simply don't optimize your cost structure for it, right? right. So that's why it's not that they're not lending to these markets, but they're not lending to it when my mind with the optimal cost structure, right? And intent. Right. But I think there's equally a lot of things we can learn from fintechs, bring that into CDFIs. And hopefully we're not having conversations about fintechs and CDFIs being mutually exclusive and Camino Financial is taking a leading role in that. That's it. Lower cost of capital, intent equals high impact as a CDFI. Appreciate it. Now let's dig into that last part a little bit more that I alluded to, which is high focus areas of opportunity. I know there are a lot, and I know we generalize it as low to moderate income, black and brown communities. Can you help us get a little bit more granular, maybe in two or three areas that you find incredibly exciting in terms of investment opportunities at Lyft? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'll also just maybe start by saying that a high opportunity area is also a term that we think about a lot in the affordable housing space. Great. So a few different thoughts here. You know, you talked about intention leading to impact, and I think that that's really important, right? I think that's the baseline. And at Lyft, through some anti-racism work that we have, you know, it's a journey that we've been working on, have really set out some core principles and priorities of mm. what, uh, to layer onto intention, right? Sometimes we know that the best of intentions can actually have even inadvertent adverse consequences. And so we've been thinking about how do we build in accountability just as much as the Mm. intention. And so I think that leads me to thinking about different high opportunity areas as you've thought of them. Earlier on, I mentioned about how some shared assets that Latino and immigrant and African-American communities that we all share is that we're leading in entrepreneurship as an example, Mm -hmm. right? Often we're thought of as the riskiest borrowers for lots of different reasons. I can give you one example. In my previous position at Meta, I was there when we started a CDFI. And so the CDFI was focused on primarily Latino and immigrant entrepreneurs who were undocumented, so ITIN holders. So, you know, when we talk about the deals that traditional banks won't do, those are sometimes furthest away from what they're willing to do, right? Mm -hmm. Because there is this stigma or notion that undocumented borrowers are the most risky. And we set out, one, to fill the access to capital gap that our community was facing, our undocumented entrepreneurs, who were actually a high opportunity area, right? As you were thinking about entrepreneurship, when I think about my parents' story, when, if I'm not mistaken, I think about your mom's story, right? Entrepreneurship is how a lot of Latino and immigrant families are able to build for the next generation and even for other communities, creating jobs in the community, creating financial inclusion and wealth building. This is not an area of risk, right? Our parents were very, very dedicated to entrepreneurship. My parents say they didn't set out to be entrepreneurial. They don't really believe themselves to be entrepreneurial. It was really out of necessity. Again, when I think about my parents who were looking to raise seven kids, they weren't going to run off with any loans. At that point, they weren't taking out loans. They didn't have access to CDFIs or knew about them, but they weren't risky at all. They were committed to, as they say, doing the right thing. 
and were committed to scaling and growing their business. So often when we think about too risky or what is considered the riskiest, they're actually highest opportunity areas because they tend to be the most profitable, the most fruitful in terms of entrepreneurship. You know, that's one example. A very different example, but I mentioned that in the affordable housing space, we do think a lot about high opportunity areas is actually place, right? So even this administration has talked a lot about supporting the development of affordable housing in high opportunity areas. So these are neighborhoods or locations that have good schools, that already have healthy food access, that might have good transit so it can help people get to work, that are already kind of a good built environment. So why don't we just help people move into these communities who might not otherwise be able to either afford to live there or for whatever reason might not be going there. Interesting. I think it's an important strategy. It is a valuable one, but it's one that's not always rooted in cultural competency, quite frankly, right? Coming from working in San Francisco's Mission District, which has been in many ways the poster child for gentrification and displacement of Latino and immigrants and the breaking up of communities, our community there, they didn't want to leave, right? They just wanted the good school access. They wanted the healthy food access. Yeah, you bring that here. Don't move me from my home. Come on. (laughs) So I think that's a really good opportunity for Liff and others like us to help support ecosystems, help round out the ecosystems. Otherwise, when we are forcing migration, essentially is what we're doing. This is where I think a lot about the community members that we served in the Mission District, which has you know inclusionary below market rate housing programs where people were given the opportunity to move across town to luxury apartments, right, under affordable rents declined in many times to go. Why? Because they didn't feel safe going to a new community, quite frankly, that was majority white, definitely not a community that they were used to and that they felt safe in, was disconnected from their jobs, their children's schools. And so thought, I'll I'll take my chances in my current situation, which is less than ideal, but had to make a really tough choice. And so when I think about affordable housing and high opportunity areas, it's a different take on it, but wanted to really call that out because that's something important for, I think, our communities, even as we advance and we do have more options financially. That's something really important to pay attention to. I really appreciate you clarifying that point because you address the ethos of the question, but also the technical element of the term and how it's applied. So thank you very much for that clarification and expansion. So now. We're reaching the tail end of our conversation. And before we start asking the final question, I want to get a sense of outlook from you because we've been talking about everything in the context of, okay, this is where we are today. This is how we're thinking about allocating capital in certain areas. But now I want to get the high level, soft, but incredibly impactful outlook that you have for the market because we're in a moment right now. And I wonder if that moment is going to exist as long as we're around and hopefully generations to come. And in fact, even better, we build on that moment and and create even bigger pools of capital because to clarify what that moment, how it's manifesting itself, it's not just in the context for our audience of the BLM movement and focus on the headlines for 
combating directly racial injustice in the United States and seeing CDFIs as a key player in fighting that fight. And I say it more for fighting that fight because we are fighting a fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're not on the offense, we're on the defense. I think a silver lining that hopefully translates from defense to offense is that virtually every big bank of the United States has committed billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars to CDFIs and MDIs, minority depository institutions, and there is overlap between the two. And even you're starting to see the likes of a Starbucks or a Netflix and other corporations like Google make very large commitments to the space as well. So even the stakeholders are broadening up. So there lies the moment. I want to set the stage for the moment, but I, I wonder if this is a moment that will expand or is this a very finite window of opportunity that one day will shut? Well, I mentioned that I'm, I also tend to be a little bit more of a cynic and more of a skeptic, but I think that my perspective here is definitely grounded in experience. I think left as is, the moment will begin to close much sooner than, than it should, or, or maybe it shouldn't close, but that you know we would like. I think what I really am very optimistic about is the recognition of the moment. And the recognition that people of color and that communities of color are having around organizing and really using our power, right? We've seen this over the last several years, particularly over the last several years, how we can organize and harness our power, how much we are needed in all of the different systems that we've been discussing today. We've Mm. made massive differences in the elections. We were making massive differences in terms of bringing awareness to racial inequities. And we can continue to make massive differences in these systems, again, as long as we don't let off the gas, right? And there have been some major, major commitments from lots of different sectors, as you described. I think we are seeing inconsistent drawdown of those commitments, quite frankly, right? There's lots of data that's come out around how much has actually been spent down, how much has actually been invested, how much has actually been funded. And so it's really- and even how it's being funded too. Like sometimes exactly. it's like billions of dollars and like, yeah, but we're just going to do something that's like zero risk, very- like minimal impact to dollar ratio, as I call it. Exactly. So the question I keep asking is, what is net new and what is net different? And Uh what I think is the toughest piece that we're up against, this requires shifts in power. And when it comes down to actually systems or even individuals letting go of power, that is when we will hit the deepest resistance. And so that is the outlook, again, looks very bright because, again, we're recognizing the moment and we recognize how much power we have and can continue to have. But definitely this is where that accountability layered onto intentionality piece comes in. And I go back to one of the very first things that we started talking about is our own lived experience. All of the organizations and companies are talking about centering people of color and lifting community voice and really listening to communities. What better way to do that than to fill our organizations and our companies with those of us who have that firsthand experience to actually support true power in decision-making and that we all work together, whether we're in community or as allies, to really make systems change. Systems change is what will allow us to institutionalize and 
move it from a moment to normal. Otherwise, we will keep in this cycle of, of resurging moments. So I'm optimistic, but I'm also realistic about the challenges that persist that we've seen over history. Wow. So much you just said there. You were just preaching and I was just <laughs> listening and listening to everything and love what you're saying. Couldn't be more full support. In particular, I say this a lot in different ways in this podcast, which is you need to put in place in decision power placements in your organization, people that represent the customers, so to speak, that mm -hmm. you want to impact. It's an oversimplified solution, but in my mind, I keep on telling people, just do that. Right. Just do that. Let's zoom out of CDFIs. Mm -hmm. I even talk about this in the context of venture capital and how less than 4% of capital go to people of color. And I say, well, you know what? You want to fix that problem? Just hire and recruit exactly. and fund asset managers that look and represent the people that they want to invest in, right? 100%. Yeah. And if you do that, trust me, it kind It'll of solves happen. itself, right? <laughs> it kind of figures itself out. Yeah. And I've had really fruitful debates about this. And I can't tell you enough how I think we need to do more. And so... Last question for you. It's a broad question. Answer any way you like. What does fundamental fairness mean to you? Choice, bottom line. Choice and good options, right? Don't give me two terrible options, one terrible option, one good option, and try to fool me into thinking I have any sort of choice, mm. right? Getting to true equity is when we all have autonomy and choice over ourselves, over our families, over our future generations. You know, I think about often when I am asked about my previous experience, I really want to put a little asterisk that says, this isn't just my previous experience. This is my current experience, right? Regardless of all of us as we do the work that we do, you know, some of us are very fortunate that our incomes have increased, right? We're starting to build wealth or have built some wealth. but I'm still an immigrant. I'm still a first-generation child, right? Mm -hmm. I have two elderly parents who have no retirement savings. So when I'm thinking about my choices for myself, for my children, I factor in my extended family. I factor in my own safety. Thinking about, again, particularly the last several years, I haven't felt safe right? Mm. And so I cannot detach myself. And this is not prior lived experience. This is a forever lived experience. And so I often have more access to choice. And so that is such a glaring distinction when people don't have choice. And if we get to true equity, that's when people are making their own choices, have the resources to execute. We don't need paternalistic imposition, right? Let everyone decide what they want, but don't kid ourselves that people have choice if they really don't. And so when I think about what fundamental fairness is, it could go a lot of different ways, but I think the crux of it all would be true choice. Wow. Love that answer. How can people follow you, learn about what you're doing, be your fans? Well, thank you. I don't know if I've accumulated any fans, but I know that Lift You have one right here. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. Likewise. LiftFund.org, so Low Income Investment Fund, L-I-I-F, 
UND.org is our website. We have a great team that puts out a lot of great content on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter. You can follow or connect with me on LinkedIn, Lucy Arellano Baglieri. I think it's a bit of a unique name with my married name attached to it. So I would love to connect to anyone who would like to discuss, challenge me. You know, again, I don't have all the answers. My experience or my perspective is not representative of all. And I'm really looking to continue my growth always. So I would love to connect with anyone that's interested. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. This has been a very insightful conversation. I've learned a lot. And once again, I'm a fan. Well, thank you for having me. You have one fan as well. And more (laughs) to come, I'm sure. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Take care. Please be sure to like and subscribe to Fundamental Fairness anywhere podcasts are available. We'd like to thank Bethany Sands for sound and editing, our creative team, Tanya Chaidez and Eric Colleen, assistant producer, Melanie Diaz, and our senior producer, Elianette Romero.